All right, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. You know, uh, today we come to what I believe is a pivotal passage in the book of Genesis. A pivotal passage perhaps in the entire Old Testament. And if I may be bold to suggest this, even in the entire Bible. Pivotal because of the impact and implications for a sinful and a fallen man. And many have called Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 15 verse 6 in particular as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 4 is Paul's expository sermon on Genesis 15.6. The letter to the Galatians and then James's letter is a further explanation of Genesis 15.6. What then is so significant about this passage? The question that the passage answers is, how can a sinful man be right with a holy God? How can a sinful man be right with a holy God? How can I be reckoned as righteous, as Genesis 15, 6 mentions? And the right answer to that question can make the difference between heaven and hell. That's why this is such a pivotal passage. And so I've titled our lesson for tonight, Reckoned as Righteous, Reckoned as Righteous. You know, the entire religious history of the world is occupied with the question, how can one be right with with God? If you had to think of the traditional Eastern religions, Hinduism, for example, it will tell you that because our problem is ignorance, uh, that is, that we don't realize that we are divine beings, Uh, We are ignorant of the fact that we are divine, and therefore salvation is in performing acts or eliminating evil from your life and doing things that will remind you that you are divine. And so good deeds, including deeds such as, or uh, things such as yoga, is a means of salvation in traditional Hinduism. Uh, To achieve salvation in Hinduism is to become one with the supreme deity called Brahma, And until you get to that stage, you go through the series of reincarnations, one life after the other. In Islam, you have the five pillars of their faith, which is fasting, pilgrimage, giving alms, that is, uh, and then praying five times a day, and then confessing that Muhammad is the true prophet. A continual practice of these things is what can help you achieve salvation. But even if you do all of these things, there is no guarantee that you will be saved. You see, because Allah may consider you deficient uh, because of some things you lack, which only he knows. And so the only sure way of salvation in Islam is is through dying uh, uh, dying for Allah in a religious cause. That's that's what they call jihad. That's as far as the theistic religions are concerned. If you think of atheism, for example, don't think that atheism escapes this mentality. Everything that is opposed to God is what atheists would tend to worship. Is it any wonder that we're seeing a rise in what many are calling the godless churches? Only goes to show that God created us to worship, but to worship him. 
And regardless of how you look at religions in the world, it really boils down then to two systems. One that is dependent on works and one that is dependent on grace. You know, there is only one system that talks about and is dependent on grace, but every other religious system depends on works. That is why this text in front of us is so monumental in its implications. But we don't get to the answer straight away. We get there by understanding the context that surrounds it. And so we begin then looking by reflecting on verse 1. Verse 1. Read with me Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. We begin looking at the passage by first of all considering a timely reminder from the Lord. After these things, after what things? Well, after the war, the, the victory, the, the encounter with Melchizedek, the, the spoils and the incredible generosity that uh, Abraham shows in chapter 14. After those things, Abraham is perhaps exhausted from the battle with four powerful kings and their armies. You know, before Lot, his nephew was taken as a captive, he was perhaps living a relatively peaceful life, tending to his own business, uh, perhaps resigned to the fact that this is the kind of life God has called him and planned and purpose for him. And so from somewhat of a nobody, Abraham is thrust into prominence as a somebody. From a lightweight, he's now become a heavyweight. He'd become a force to reckon with. But you know, prominence or being in the spotlight has its own downsides as well. Abraham now has a target on his back. He is the enemy number one. He's perhaps exhausted and discouraged. And it is after these things that the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision. How wonderfully refreshing to hear from the Lord after you're exhausted, like some of us are, and discouraged, right? But this, by the way, is not a norm in how the Lord communicates with his people. You see, Abraham's role in the history of the world, in the spiritual history of the world, is unique and it, it is special. In fact, the Jews would look back at Abraham as the father of the nation and the spiritual head of their people, but not only Jews, the Gentiles, which is most of us here, would look back to Abraham also as our spiritual father. In Romans chapter 4, the chapter that I referenced earlier, Paul writes, And he, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that is, the Gentiles, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also all who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. In short, Abraham is the spiritual father of both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Abraham is a very unique and a special individual. And to him, the word of the Lord comes in a vision. And what does the Lord say to him? Well, three things by way of a timely reminder. There is a divine precept or an imperative, and then two divine assurances that he gives. Uh, first of all, a divine precept or an imperative, and he says to Abraham, do not fear, Abraham. 
Now, you have every reason not to fear when the very creator of this world, the sovereign Lord of this, this universe, tells you not to fear. And Abraham actually needed to hear this for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons mentioned earlier was because he's now a man uh, uh, to contend with. He's the, he's the enemy's target right now. Uh, perhaps this encounter through this vision with the Lord was a scary encounter, and the Lord needed to remind him not, not to fear. Or perhaps, like Zacharias in, in Luke chapter 1 in the New Testament, who also encountered a divine being, an angel, and the first words from the mouth of this angel to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, were, do not be afraid, Zacharias. And in both cases, there is a childless father who needed comfort and reassurance. What a great comfort this must have brought to Abraham to hear from the Lord, not to, not to fear. From a divine percept, we move on to a divine assurance by way of reminder as we think of his assurance of protection. He says to him, I am a shield to you. The Lord tells him that he will be a shield to him. You know, a shield in the Bible and in general history is a metaphor that represents the protection of the Lord. In general history, shield by way of an armor is one that protects uh, you from the arrows and the darts of the enemy. Uh, it can protect uh, important parts of the body such as the head and the, and the heart, and in some cases even the entire body. They were not only used to protect against the enemy, but they were also used to push the enemy back or away. Uh, these shields were often made of metal, uh, but also sometimes were made of wood that was covered with animal hide and which could extinguish flaming fires or arrows. You see, they provided protection. Abraham needs to hear from the Lord that he is a shield to him. You see, Abraham needed to hear this even as he's in the midst of recovering from, from the battle. And God, as a shield to his people, is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. If you are his child... This is also an assurance that you can have. Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, David reminds us he is the rock in whom his people take refuge. He is their shield and the horn of their salvation. He is their stronghold and their refuge. When David fled from Absalom, his son who was rebelling against him, he writes this in Psalm 3 verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. In another psalm, David also writes, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults. And with my song, I shall thank him. Now, you might say, weren't things different under the old covenant and the new covenant? Yes, under the old covenant, God promised physical protection for the Israelites. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 7. But under the new covenant, God promises us God doesn't specifically promise us physical protection, but he promises us something far greater as he promises us our spiritual protection. You see, God protects us from at least two things that we can derive from the scriptures. One is, he, is that he protects us from our spiritual enemy. You see, our greatest spiritual enemy is Satan, who seeks to discourage us and to destroy our souls, but he can never cross the boundaries that God has set for us. And how does he do that? Well, it, God's Holy Spirit indwells in a believer permanently. 
It is this confidence in God's protection that lies at the heart of Paul's last epistle when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18. He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So God protects us from our spiritual enemy, but he not only protects us from our spiritual enemy, he also shields us from temptations. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. But the trouble with many believers is who give in to temptation is that instead of looking for the way of escape that God provides, we let ourselves be fascinated by the temptation, just like the bird that is fascinated by the snake that is about to devour it. Look to God for deliverance. God is true to his word. He is a faithful God. And that's what he assures Abraham here of. I am a shield to you. Abraham then has received a divine precept. He's received a divine assurance of protection. And thirdly, he also receives a divine assurance of provision. Notice he says, your reward shall be very great. You know, Abraham already had a lot of wealth. He was already prosperous. Uh, And so is God referring to blessing him even more financially? After all, Abraham has just rejected the spoils of war in chapter 14. That's probably not the sense here. The sense in this assurance is not as much about things and possessions as much as it is about the person who is giving the reward. It's not about the gift itself, but about the giver of those gifts. And I think the New International Version and the New King James Version have got it right As far as translation is concerned, the NIV translates this as, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward, or your great reward. And the New King James Version translates, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. You see, the words shield and reward are in opposition to each other. That is, two words being placed next to each other having the same referent. In this case, it would be the Lord. He is Abraham's shield, and he is Abraham's reward. What a stunning statement that is. God himself is Abraham's reward. And what is true of Abraham is also true of a child of God. And so the question is, in what way is God a reward for his children? Certainly not in the sense that we like to think of other rewards or gifts, but in the sense that we have all we need in God. We have all we need in God. God is our reward in the sense that in this life and in the life to come, we also get to participate. We get to be in God's likeness. We we get to have some of God's characteristics such as his love and his goodness and his kindness and his holiness. Uh, The fact that we get to participate in these as his children is a wonderful reward, isn't it? We share in all that God has, and we share in all that God is. That's what it means that God is our reward. We share in all that God has, and we share in all that God is. And what makes God's statement to Abraham so stunning 
is that spiritually speaking, we are all bankrupt. We are all born in sin, and sin we are conceived. In our own efforts, in, in our works, in our good deeds, we stand no chance of being right with God, and no chance of being declared righteous. But there is a great transaction that takes place, a great exchange that takes place on the cross of Calvary. Our worst, that is our sins, are laid on Christ, and his best, his righteousness, is laid on us. Isn't it Paul again who writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Firstly then, there is a timely reminder from the Lord, a reminder not to fear, a reminder of his protection, and a reminder of his provision for Abraham. That brings us to the next section, which is verse 2 and verse 3. Notice what Moses records for us. Abraham said, O Lord, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And we, as we think of the second section here, we think of a tone of resignation from Abraham. What can be a great reward, Lord? Or what use is a great reward when I don't even have children? The one to whom all my wealth and property would go would be Eliezer of Damascus. Well, that's the context would help us here. You see, when a wealthy man in those times did not have a son, he, he bought a slave or he adopted a person and then he trained that person to take over and inherit his possessions. And the adopted individual then cared for the couple when they were alive and that he would be the one who would bury them when they were dead. And Abraham says here, everything you are giving me will go to Eliezer and he's not even my son. Now that almost sounds like a lament. Uh, there is a tone of resignation here. He's resigned to the reality that he does not have children and that he will not have any children. In verse 2, if you were to look closely, he laments about the fact that he is childless. And then in verse 3, he laments about the fact that God has not given him an offspring. But you know, even in the midst of this circumstance that Abraham is in, this lament, this despair, Abraham actually implicitly acknowledges something so profound and yet so simple. And it is this. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward from the Lord. It is the Lord God who gives children. And they come to us as a gift, as a blessing from the Lord. Now, if I can take some liberty with this passage, can I also say something that is immediately applicable to our group, this single adults group. You see, a spouse is also a gift from the Lord. A spouse is also a gift from the Lord. And because that is true, it is always, always worth waiting for that one individual who will be your spouse. This, by the way, is the first time we have a conversation being recorded between God and Abraham. You see, so far, Abraham has only listened, but now, and slowly, some frustration is beginning to seep in, in Abraham's response. And so in Abraham's response, we see a tone of resignation, don't we? How does God respond to that? That brings us to the third section, verse 4 and verse 5. 
Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The response then, as we look at it, shows us a gentle reassurance from the Lord. A gentle reassurance from the Lord. The response begins with the word, then behold, or look. Or if we had to translate that in common language, it would be, Abraham, sit up and take notice. Uh, pay careful attention. Stop looking at your immediate circumstance. Stop looking at your situation. Stop looking in. There are no answers there, Abraham. And look to me. He begins first by dealing with the big problem that Abraham raised earlier. You see, Eli what was the problem? Eliezer is going to receive all my inheritance. He's going to be my heir. And the Lord responds, this man will not be your heir. Let's get that out of the way first. The one that shall be your heir is one that will come from your own body. Literally, the word says, from your bowels. He will be your own flesh and bones. And the one that is your own flesh and bones is the one that will be your heir. Notice that nothing here is said about Sarai, who is still barren. It's only Abraham's impotency that is addressed here, but not Sarai's barrenness yet. The Lord will deal with that in Genesis 17. When we get there, we'll, we'll deal with that, those verses. And then the Lord, in verse 5, tells us, the Lord takes him outside his tent and tells him to look at the heavens, the sky. Go ahead, he says, and start counting the stars. That's how many descendants I will give you. Now you might say, this sounds pretty familiar to the earlier promises, but if you were to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 12, that is the first time we see an interaction with Abraham. Abraham is told to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land that God will show him. God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. He promises him blessings. He also promises to make his name great, and he commands him to be a blessing. And he also says, in, the na in, in, in him, all the nations will be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Then, if you go down to Genesis 13, verse 14 to 17, God gives him some more specifics about this promise. Uh, the promise here deals with the land and with the descendants. Look, the Lord says, the land that you observe, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Uh, look down at the dust of the earth. I will make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And then we get back to Genesis 15. Now, for the first time in Genesis 15, God gives him even more specifics. He clarifies the promise even more. He says the descendant will be your child. He will come forth from your body. Previously, the number of descendants were compared to the dust. Now they're compared to the number of stars. Uh, previously, God asked Abraham to look down. Now he is asked to look up. All of that to say, there will be a large number of people that will consider you as their spiritual father, as, your, as their patriarch. You know, every revelation that is there, every new revelation is built on the previous revelation and designed to bring more clarity. That, that, that's what is happening here. And God is telling Abraham, what seems impossible from your eyes, from your perspective, Abraham, is possible with me. 
what seems an insurmountable obstacle is not a challenge to me at all. Now, before we go any further, just remember that this promise is specific to Abraham and to his descendants. Uh, this is not something that God promises to everyone who is his child. This is not a promise for everyone who is a member of God's family. Uh, this, this was a promise that was specific to Abraham. But there are some principles that we can draw from this about God's character. Uh, there are at least two that I can draw. And this is something that's common throughout li the life of Abraham. First of all, the God that the Bible talks about is a promise-keeping God. Uh, there's no hint of any backing out or no intention of not fulfilling what God has promised. He fully, that is God fully intends to do what he said he will do. He keeps his word. He is a promise-keeping God. And we were singing earlier, he will hold me fast. We have the assurance from his word that Christ is the one that holds us fast. Therefore, we need not fear. He always fulfills his promises. But not only that, the text also reminds us that this is the sovereign Lord of the universe, of the world, of, the, of everything that exists. You know, for God to promise the things that he promises Abraham uh, to bring them to pass, there are millions, perhaps billions of permutations and combinations that need to take place. God knows the man. He knows who the descendants from this one man would be, each one of them, how many there will be, and where they will be, and everything about them. Is it any wonder that the psalmist in Psalm 139 reminds us, verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written, all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You know, as you think of our situation here, keeping up with 8 billion or 9 billion people is no problem for God at all. He's the sovereign Lord of history. If that is not a problem for for him at all, will he have any difficulty keep, keeping up with your life? <laughs> Not at all. You know, to Abraham's doubting mind, the Lord provides a gentle reassurance that he fully intends on keeping his promises. And the promise of making him a great nation through giving him a land and descendants still stands. And not only that, the descendant will be one that will come from Abraham himself. How does Abraham respond? And this is where we'll spend the rest of our evening. Notice verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Fourthly, we see him reckoned as righteous, reckoned as righteous by the Lord. We are provided with a very, very simple verse, yet the meaning and the implications of this verse are earth-shattering and truly destiny-changing. How can a sinful man be right with a holy God? How can an unrighteous man be made righteous in God's eyes? If you're here and you're thinking, I'm not that bad, I'm not an unrighteous man, well, compared to who? All of us, God's word tells us, has broken God's law. We're all unrighteous. And right here in this verse is the gospel. And in the remaining time, I want to unpack it for us. You might be saying to yourself, gospel in the Old Testament? Isn't it a reality in the New Testament? The simple answer is no. I, I want to show you from God's word that the way people were saved in the Old Testament, 
is the same way in which they are saved in the New Testament and even today. That the way that they were redeemed, that the way they were justified, that the way that they were declared or reckoned as righteous was the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament or the church age. So let me kind of set the stage as I ask and answer a few questions. And my hope and prayer is that it will bring clarity to what this verse means. And so if you're here tonight, you've never heard the gospel, what a night to be at 128. A life-changing night in so many ways as we consider this verse. Let's set the context first of all. Let me begin by mentioning some assumptions that I'm making. I'm assuming that we agree that there is a God who has created the heavens and the earth and that he owns everything and that he is the one who sets the standards on how we ought to live. Now with that assumption, let's see what, what, what does God want from us? If we had to ask that question, what does God want from us? Well, he wants us to obey his law perfectly. That's what God wants from us. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5, Moses records for us, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statues to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statues and judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. What does God want from us? He wants us to obey his law perfectly. Well, if we keep all of the law, what will God declare us to be? Well, he will declare us to be righteous. In Ezekiel 18.9, it says, If he walks in my statues and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. If we keep the law, God will declare us to be righteous. But what's the problem then? The problem is that all of this sounds so simple, but no one has kept or can keep God's law. No one obeys God's law as they should. We are focused on the Old Testament. So let me quote Old Testament scriptures to us. I've mentioned them there. Isaiah 64, verse 6 and 7 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind takes us away. There's no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Sounds very much like Romans 3.23, doesn't it? In fact, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Not a single person. You know, thinking from a financial perspective, it's as if each one of us is born with a debt. It's like what John Bunyan describes as the burden. And every day that we live, we just accumulate more and more debt. And no matter how much we earn, we can never repay this debt. So what has to happen for us to be released from this debt? Someone has to repay this debt on our behalf. On our account is accumulated sins upon sins against a holy God, and we are daily accumulating his wrath against us. And the only way to satisfy God's requirement, the only way to satisfy his wrath, is for someone to take our sins and in exchange give us his righteousness. Now you, you understand where I'm going with this. That someone, the Bible says, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quote that verse again, which I Mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, our worst is laid on Christ and his best is laid on us. Uh, Christ's righteousness is deposited, deposited in our account and our sins laid on him. This has always been the way anyone has ever been justified. But you say, isn't Christ mentioned in the New Testament? How come people in the Old Testament then got saved? Well, let me mention a few things as I think of the text itself. As we think of the gospel from the Old Testament. You see, if you were to read the Old Testament as it was supposed to be read and understood and obeyed, the Old Testament actually points to Christ. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke actually records for us this story of two disciples of Jesus who are on their way to Emmaus. Uh, it's a town that was seven miles further from Jerusalem. And as they are walking and talking, Jesus himself approaches them and starts walking with them. As he engages them in a discussion, the disciples express sadness uh, with the recent events in Jerusalem, events about Jesus, uh, the one that they were hoping would be their redeemer. They say he was sentenced to die and was crucified. <laughs> Notice what they say. In verse 17, Jesus says to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? <laughs> Don't you know what's going on here? Well, the irony of that statement is he was the only one who knew what was going on there. As if that is not enough, some woman, he says, who visited the tomb where he was laid, told them that the angels appeared to them and told them that he was alive. Notice what Jesus responds to them, verse 25. And he said, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses which is what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and with all the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In other words, in the, Old, the Old Testament actually points to Christ. But what can we say about Abraham? We can say that Abraham actually heard the gospel. Turn in your Bibles a few chapters down to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Paul begins by quoting Genesis 15, 6. Notice what he says in verse 6. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, which is most of us here, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. The gospel that Paul is referring here is a direct quotation from Genesis 12.3, a verse that we read earlier. You see, through Abraham, the whole world was blessed because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. 
And because of Jesus, any person, Jew or Gentile, can be forgiven and be taken in in his kingdom. In Christ, we receive the spiritual blessing of justification, just as Abraham did. Notice verse 29 in the same chapter. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Abraham then heard the gospel. But not only that, Abraham understood the gospel. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want us to turn there so you can see for yourself how the scripture builds this case. Now here our Lord is talking and interacting with the Jews. Notice what they say to Jesus, verse 53. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom, so whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you've not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Notice what he says in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's Abraham living in the Old Testament saw a day coming forward about when the Messiah would be sent. He saw it and he rejoiced. And so as we look back, sitting in the 21st century, at a point in time in the history of this world where Christ did come and died for you and for me, believers in the Old Testament looked forward to a time when the Messiah would come. Abraham understood the gospel. But not only that, let's go back to Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed in the gospel. Abraham believed in the gospel what was Abraham really believing? Well, the text is not immediately clear. It's not that he's believing what God says in verse 4 and 5. He does believe that. But notice verse 6. He says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So let's look at this verse more closely in the time that we have left. This is the first time belief or faith Righteousness and justification as words and concepts are coming together in the Bible. Notice, notice first of all, Abraham actually believed in the Lord. Abraham believed in the Lord. He had faith in the Lord. It's not faith itself that saves. It's the object of your faith. It's the one that Abraham actually believed in. If it were faith that saved Abraham, then faith would become the ground for our salvation. In other words, faith would become like works. And we've already established the fact that we cannot, be served, we cannot be saved because of our works. If you have time, go back to Galatians as you read that particular epistle as Paul makes the case for the fact that we would boast if it was on works. In fact, he does the same thing in Romans chapter 4. And so faith cannot be the ground of our salvation. Our faith is not the grounds of our salvation. It is an avenue. It's a means. It's a medium through which you receive salvation. It is a channel. Notice also, secondly, that it happened at a moment of moment in time. You know, if I were to ask you, for some of you, you'll remember exactly what you heard, exactly where you were, and the very moment when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and became a child of God. 
some of us don't remember all the details. You may remember a month or a year or even a season of life, whether it's middle school or high school or perhaps college that you came to know the Lord. But regardless of the fact of whether you remember a moment or not, your conversion, your being reckoned as righteous happened at a moment in time. One moment you were under the domain of darkness and the next moment you were under the domain of the kingdom of his son. You see, conversion is a spiritual rebirth. All of us were physically born into this world at a moment in time. And same is true of our spiritual birth. That also happened at a moment in time. But thirdly, also observe that it was individual and personal. Uh, that is to say, salvation is not a group thing. It is an individual thing. We all as a group are sinners. We have sinned against a holy God, but our justification is always individual and personal. It was Abraham, notice in verse 6, who was declared righteous, not his entire family, not all the descendants that came from Abraham. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal life. He or she will be saved. Notice also that it was the Lord who reckoned or credited to Abraham righteousness. Now the interesting thing about that word, the word it, that is mentioned in, if you have the NASB, uh, the word it is not referring to the faith that Abraham actually displayed. Read, let's read that verse again. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. It is not Abraham's faith that is being reckoned here. It is not as if God looked all over the world for someone to believe in him so that then God would save him. That's not what is happening. And that it then does not refer to Abraham's faith. What? Well, before I go there, you know, grammatically the word it demands a noun before it. But the noun is missing here. And so we are forced to look at uh, beyond this text to understand what was reckoned to Abraham. And so, or whose righteousness was credit to, credited to Abraham's account. And so we can conclude that the it does not refer to Abraham's faith, and so therefore it's referring to someone else's righteousness that is credited to Abraham's account. The word reckon or credit is a, is a bookkeeping term. It's as if only sin existed in an account. The Lord takes our sin and puts it on some, in someone else's account, and he takes that person's righteousness and he puts it in our account. That's what reckoned or credited or accounted means. But who is that someone else? Who is the only person in the world who lived the kind of life that you and I should have lived? Who is the only person in the world who has perfectly met all of God's standards? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He was the only one who met God's perfect standards. You don't have to turn there, but when Peter is interacting with the Jews in Acts 3, he said to them, but you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. A few chapters down in chapter 7, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, as he addresses the Sanhedrin, he says to them, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? See, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
It is his righteousness then that is credited to our account, and our sins are placed on him. Is there anyone else? No, says Peter. Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And it was his righteousness also that was credited to Abraham's account. Abraham was reckoned as righteous because of the atoning and the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf. The same way that you and I are saved today is the same way that the Old Testament saints and believers were saved as well. If that is what happened with Abraham, the question is, how can you and I receive this same salvation? You see, there's only one way to be right with God, and it is to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to reject trusting in your own self and in your own works. Uh, That is, it is to place that trust Take that trust and place it on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And when you do that, God takes your sin from your account and puts it in Christ's account and takes his righteousness and puts it in your account. That's the only way to be righteous before a holy God. I mentioned an accounting or a bookkeeping term, but there are other ways in which scriptures talks about this justification, this salvation. Uh, The songwriter, a favorite of mine, He writes, his robes for mine, O wonderful exchange, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. If you're a child of God, if you've been reckoned as righteous, what is the kind of response this text is looking for? The only response for you is to continue to cling to Christ as he holds you fast. And he will hold you fast. It is to amaze and marvel at the cost God was willing to pay to reconcile you to himself. It is to remind yourself of this great love with which God has loved you and to resolve not to live for your own self but to the praise and glory of Christ alone. What a wonderful passage this is. I'd be happy to talk to you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But as a child of God, we can continue to praise and worship this great God for what he has accomplished in your life and mine. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Lord, I'm I'm afraid that I've not done enough justice to this text in explaining what it truly means. But would you take what has been spoken on your behalf through your word. And would you apply that to someone here who perhaps does not know you as their Lord and Savior? Or would you take that and would you use it for your glory alone? For those of us who are sitting here and who have been reckoned as righteous, who have been declared righteous, who have been justified because of the blood that was shed for us, Lord, may we resolve to Hold fast to Christ as he holds fast to us. It is to also continue to marvel and amaze at the great cost at which he accomplished the salvation for us. And to resolve to live our lives entirely for the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May that be true of each and every one who is sitting here today. 
that we would not go without making this resolve. And if we have already made that resolve, that we would do everything we can to be faithful and committed to fulfilling that resolve. May our lives reflect your goodness, your holiness, your love, your care and concern for your people, in whose name I now pray. Amen.